give God's word, please turn to Mark chapter number 10 this morning. Mark chapter number 10. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. We'll take our reading from Mark chapter number 10, verse 35 through 45 this morning. Um, and this is the inerrant, infallible word of God. You read these words in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with you, will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. <clears throat> but Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, again, we just praise you for the privilege to sit under your word. Father, with the recognition that um, approximately half the world, as far as we know it, Father, is without a text in their own language. How privileged we are, Father. How blessed. How much grace you've extended to us um, to where we could all hold Bibles in our hands, Father. Um, whether it's in paper form, electronic form, Father. I've been so under the tutelage of the Word of God since, our, um, since we were knee-high. Um, that it's in our hearts. What a blessing it is just to sit under your word. What a blessing it is this morning, Father, just to serve your people. God, no doubt this congregation um, loves the word of God. And we praise you for that, Father, for putting in us a desire um, to know your word, Father, and to love your word and to obey your word. And we just pray that today, Father, would be an, uh, an expression of that. That as the word of God is preached, Father, even in my own heart, that it would just melt away self and that it would give birth, Father, to Christ I mean, in life and practice. So, Father, if our theology needs to be changed today, change it. Father, if our practice needs to be changed today, change it. Whatever it takes, Father, for you to honor and glorify yourself, I pray that we are ready to embrace. I'm seeing you as the all-worthy purpose, Father, um, in this life. So, Lord... Help us not to pursue this morning a race for a corruptible crown. But Father, for that which is incorruptible, help us not to lay up treasures on earth this morning, Father, but treasures in heaven. Father, may this next hour just be a rabid pursuit of you and a delight to delight in you, Father, and to delight in your Son. God, we need your spirit to accomplish that. So, Father, do it in your name. We trust you with this. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Amen. If you're visiting with us, um, the book of Mark is not something that's unfamiliar with us. Um, over the past several months and probably over a year now, we've just been trekking verse by verse to the book of Mark. And what a blessing. I've, I pray that it's been to you. I know that it has been particularly to me just to glean into the life of our Lord and Savior. I've just been week after week uh, simply looking into His life, seeing His heart, seeing how His mind operates, seeing how He disciples um, His men, and just how He interacts with unbelievers, how He interacts with the Father, um, how He depends upon the Spirit of God and His humanity, uh, but ultimately is God. What a privilege it's been, and we'll carry that on this morning as we pick up um, in verse number 35. And for those of you that have been with us, it's probably, uh, it seems like somewhat of a very familiar passage of Scripture. Maybe not all the details of it, but it was probably a month to two months ago that we, we encountered in the book of Mark a very similar episode in Mark chapter 9. In verse number 33, you read these words. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, in Mark 9.33, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a little child and used that little baby, that little infant or that little child, uh, to teach them a great lesson about the kingdom of God and um, true greatness within that kingdom. He doesn't stifle a desire to be great. Um, he simply takes the desire of greatness in their own hearts and their desire to excel and teaches them in what realm or in what way and what pursuit um, true greatness comes. So we, it's pretty astonishing that just as far as we can tell, a few weeks later in the life and ministry of our Lord that He's having almost the same conversation. And this is what you find. And in some sense, we can be very hard on the disciples, but in another sense, it gives me hope because on many days, I'm a hard-hearted, hard-headed young man that it takes multiple lessons to teach me um, the divine truth that God wants me uh, to learn. So He often puts me through many teachings, whether practically or um, didactically, academically, you name it. Um, Often He drives home uh, the same lesson in my own heart, and I think that's probably all of us. So in one sense, we may be hard upon the apostles today, but in another sense, um, we, we probably need to be hard upon ourselves because we're all made of, made of the same stuff. Um, but the ultimate issue here is pride. Even in with the, within the life of a believer, um, pride is just such a huge issue because um, pride seems to, be, um, seems to be the overarching or the foundational issue with all of humanity. You know, you may be able to pick out an arrogant person, but arrogance is somewhat different. You can differentiate that from pride. Um, Arrogance would be just an external um, display of a prideful heart in such a way that they've almost embraced the pride and they want you to know how prideful that they are. Um, But really at the very basic unit of humanity, um, in all reality, um, pride is at the heart of us all. 
whether it manifests itself in an arrogant heart or an arrogant mouth or an arrogant um, uh, external attitude, um, or it's a pride of of morality and earning our way to heaven with religious accolades. Um, the reality is is that we're all born into this world with a sinful nature, and at the core of that sinful nature is a prideful heart. And the Bible speaks much to that, I think, because of that reason. God is not silent on the issue of pride. He says in Proverbs 8.13 that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. All throughout the Scriptures you find that pride is characteristic of the world. It's characteristic of the flesh. It's characteristic of the devil. Um, it's characteristic of false teachers. It's characteristic of, of essentially all of mankind. Just taken in different forms and different ways. And when restraints are cast off, it may look different. Um, but at the end of the day, um, humanity at its base is prideful and arrogant, um, thinking himself to be God and worshiping himself to be God and finding all sorts of ways to carry that out, um, whether in explicit evil or in um, implicit um, evil. Guise then uh, humility and morality. James 4, 6 says that um, as Proverbs did, that God not only hates evil, but He resists the proud. Um, that it alienates man from God. That it is the root sin of all humanity. That all sin appears to grow out of pride. And subsequently, it's a circle of pride. That it grows out of it, but it also feeds it. It's a circle of pride. All temptations are rooted in, and maybe we can put it another way, um, self-gratification. That um, the, the, the solicitation to do evil, the reason to do evil is a temptation because, because we want to, because it's a desire of our heart to carry, to carry that out. It's a deep-seated reality that manifests itself in different ways. And, and there's a sense in which that, that, that could be why Christ is, from a natural perspective, having a hard time getting across the concept of true humility. Um, and again, uh, not to give these guys too hard of a time, but, but, but to remind us that these men are of common stock. These men are not the religious elite. We want to give them a hard time because these are the apostles. And we read of Peter and we read of uh, John and we read of these other men throughout, especially the epistles, and we see um, just their um, spiritual um, level at such a state that we, we read back into the Gospels these men to where they are. Um, but you need to realize that in the first three and a half years of their ministry, that these men were very immature in the faith. These men were common men. These were blue-collar men. These were not seminary graduates. They're not theologically astute or trained. Um, they, they don't know how to arrange a sermon. They don't know how to, to apply it. And, and they're having difficult with that. You know, they, they're, they're common. And in some sense, they're sitting under Christ, this Messiah, and they have so many things going for them. Um, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that, 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 that from what I can understand of the Gospels up to this point, that, that most of them, if all of them are not saved, they have a, a theological understanding of Christ. They believe that He's the Messiah. They know that the kingdom um, is, is coming. But, uh, so, so there's so many things that are, that are, that are positive that we can just, just uphold these men for. They have their, their good moments. But they're just common men. They're learning. They're immature. They're like us on many days with a misunderstanding of the truth of God's Word and how often we apply it superficially or, or indifferently or, or, or traditionally. Um, but, but you can almost see 
That, that with their understanding of the Old Testament and without the full revelation of what Christ would come and do in His death, burial, and resurrection and the, the dissension of the, the, the Spirit of God upon their hearts and lives in, in Acts, you can almost understand why they would um, interpret the Old Testament Scriptures the way that they do. And that the Messiah is going to come and He's going to uh, build the kingdom here and now. That's the way Ju- uh, most of Judaism uh, interpreted it during those days. And they thought, man, this is our time to shine. You know, like this is our moment to go from being a nobody to a somebody. You know, to make it to the top, elevation of status is always appealing, especially to those that are without and those that are of a common man. So these blue collar men, you can almost understand why they, they ask questions like, Lord, we, we left all that we have. What's in it for us? You know, um, we left our, our, our families and we left our careers and they're looking for this kingdom of Old Testament uh, prophecy that it would eventually culminate. And they, you can almost see why in immaturity that we as, as believers would even have some of the same questions and maybe many times uh, we, we do. So it's, it's, it's especially appealing. And in this portion of Scripture, you see a unique account of that um, with our brothers in Christ, James and John. Verse number 35, you read these words, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Whatever we ask. And it's interesting, last week I wasn't present for it, but, it's, but Jesus also gives the Gospel. Right? Once again, what you see is the, these accounts of pride and then the giving of the Gospel. You see this explicit revealing of Christ's suffering, and there seems to be almost no conversation ever about that. And you would think that after that, they would, they would, be, um, it would somewhat humble their hearts, but um, it seems throughout the Gospels, until His death and resurrection, um, it never truly does. But they continue to take the, the, the Scripture, ignore that, and take... Um, what they know of the reality of God's revelation and turn it in on them themselves. So that when they should be humble because of the preaching of the cross they just received, um, again, they, they, they read into the Scriptures um, of themselves in a very prideful and an, an arrogant way. And you may remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Um, they're also referred to um, in, in another place in Scripture in Luke as the sons of thunder. We don't really know exactly why. The Scripture doesn't tell us why they're referred to that. Many people believe it's because um, at one point James and John um, run into an account with Christ with a group of people that they have a distaste for. And they literally look at Christ and say, Lord, you want us to call down some fire from heaven and consume them? You know, they were brash young men. They were um, bold young men and not always the best way. Just, um, just really showing forth their, their immaturity. And in here again, we see kind of a, a revelation of that as well. And Matthew's account of this same par- uh, this par- his parallel account tells us that not only did James and John come, but his mother came. You know, they brought their mama with them to talk to Jesus. Um, and, and through that, through, through parallel accounts and various other things, it, it, it appears that that James and John's mother is also um, Jesus's aunt. So it could have been a familial type of relationship to where um, James and John thought that they could bring their mother which is Jesus' aunt, um, and gained some type of ground with Him to get them to do whatever um, they desired. And what you read are these words, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And you can kind of see the immaturity of that. Um, and maybe uh, many commentators and uh, listen to various sermons and all of them point out the fact that, that this is, this is um, extremely immature, and it's almost like the immaturity of a child. 
And maybe you had a child like that that came to you and said, Mommy or Daddy, um, I have a question for you, but whatever. Uh, but before I ask, I want, uh, will you say yes? Uh, will you say no? Will you allow me um, the desires of my heart whatever, without ever even hearing the argument? That's exactly what they do. And they come to Christ and they say, Teacher, uh, we want you to do whatever we ask. And in verse number 36, Jesus responds and He simply asks them, what would you like for me um, to do to you or do for you? Verse number 37, and they said to Him, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. And these men, again, are theologically astute in the sense that practically that these are also men that were up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So they've seen somewhat of the glory of Christ. They know a little bit more than the other apostles and they're there as young men um, seeking the place of prominence and prestige and, and power. During those days and prior, um, that's exactly what kings would do. They would take the most of intimate of men and disciples and put them in places of authority right next to them and give them accolades and even responsibilities and powers that were uh, beyond the, the, the common man um, even within the kingdom. And this is what they're asking. They're asking to be placed in a, in a, in a place of, of prominence and prestige and power. But Jesus says to them in verse 38, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am um, baptized with? And then you see really the, the chilling, vain confidence, the, the, the chilling arrogance of these young men. And you also see somewhat, and maybe, again, not to give them too hard of a time, but, but you also see just the misunderstanding and a superficial rendering of what they do um, understand. They say so quickly, seemingly without hesitation, they said to him in verse 39, Lord, we are able. We are able. We are able. Jesus asked, Are you able to drink? Are you able to baptize? You know, through the study of scriptures, there's no doubt that this cup is a symbol of the full wrath of God, of the divine judgment that Jesus would eventually drink um, to the dregs at Calvary. That baptism is uh, symbolic and it, uh, it, it refers to the immersion, uh, no doubt, into death and into to darkness. And these men say, you know, with, a, with a, a, clearly a misunderstanding of what He meant, um, yes, Lord, we're able. We're able to carry the cross that You carry. We're able to bear the burden that You bear. We're able to endure the wrath that You endure. We're able to, to take the full fury to drink the cup, to be baptized, to be fully immersed. Matthew Henry says, we know not what we ask when we ask for the glory of wearing the crown and not ask for the grace to bear the cross on our, our way to it. They would share eventually, and that's what He goes on to say in verse number 39. So Jesus said to them, you indeed will drink the cup that I drink. And we'll be baptized with the baptism that I am um, baptized. Um, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And they would eventually drink the cup in some portion. They would eventually be baptized in the sufferings of Christ. We know that First Peter 4.13 actually says that this is the case for all Christians. Um, to suffer with their Lord. Um, to take upon themselves tribulations and trials and, and, and a whole host of other difficulties of persecutions within the world, that this is um, the stock in which we are born out of. 
that we fellowship in the sufferings of our Lord. We find that to be a reality in James' life. In Acts chapter 12, he's the first martyr of all the apostles. Our Lord takes him home. We find in Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 9, the apostle John um, writes these words. Yet Michael the archangel, oh sorry, one page back. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom of and patience of Jesus Christ. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion, fellowshipping in the tribulation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that these men would eventually understand and bear and, and bear the cup and, and, and receive the baptism to some extent as we, we all will. Not in a salvific way, not in a saving way, not earning any redemption. There would be no redemption that they would earn by the virtues of their sufferings. But Christ's disciples are all called to enter into the fellowship of, of their sufferings. And that's what He teaches them there. And then He goes on to affirm that He doesn't give the position. And you kind of see somewhat of His incarnation and the veiling of His, his deity and His humanity there. And that there are certain prerogatives that He gave up and rights that He gave up in His humanity uh, which he says, I don't decide those things now, but the, um, those positions are prepared um, essentially by my Father in, in heaven. And that's what he says in verse number 40. Um, but it is for those for whom it is pre prepared. Verse number 41, And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Now they're indignant. You may have a translation that actually says indignant. Uh, imagine the scene. James and John have pulled Christ to the side to some extent um, and asked them a question, or maybe they were just so arrogant and brash that they did it right in front of them, you know, um, and, and argue um, that they should receive the prominent place in the kingdom in glory. Um, and from what I can understand of this passage of Scripture, they're not upset because that was a foolish question. Um, they seem to be upset because. Maybe they wanted to get to Christ to ask that question first. Maybe they're like a lot of young men who gather together in groups and in their immaturity argue about who the kingdom, who, 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 uh, who's the greatest, and then um, in a stalemate, they slyly uh, remove themselves from the group to go and do whatever it is that they have just argued about. And that may be the exact case that they've talked about it, that they've conversated about it, they've discussed it, dialogued, and here James and John have now beat the other ten to the punch. The indignation should be about our Lord's sufferings, but it's, um, it seems to be pure jealousy that the others would have any right to position when clearly some of the other ten were greater. Verse number 42, Jesus calls them to Himself and says to them, you know, there's, Jesus deals with different people at different times in different ways. It's amazing how our Lord at different times um, just rebukes them harshly and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You know? And argues the demonic nature of the argument that he's about, that, that, that Peter just made. But then at times, our Lord takes our disciples, his disciples in their immaturity, and sits them down as a father with their children after they just had a scuffle. And with con complete control and compassion, um, just loves his children. And that's what he does here. He brings them to himself. 
when he could have said how foolish of a question you men are asking, how ignorant, how, you know, how many times have I told you, how many times do I have to tell you? I mean, he could have lost it on them with a righteous type of anger because of their hard-headedness and their inability um, to receive. But again, man, just remind yourself of yourself on most days. How patient our Lord is with us and how oftentimes um, He would be right and, 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 and totally um, just to just wipe us off of the face of the earth with the way that we deal with our children or our wives some days or with our career and just our, our, our dissatisfaction and our discontentment and all these other things. And the Lord um, brings us back on a Lord's Day or He takes us to the right Scripture on the right day um, or the Spirit of God just overwhelms us with the truth that's already rooted in our hearts and lives and we're just reminded of the love of Christ and how, how often our Lord is just so patient with us um, with his teaching and that's what he does here he takes these men whom he's been with for almost three years and a a lesson that they should have learned and he brings them to himself he brings them close in and he sits them down as a great rabbi would and he teaches them this lesson one more time and it's interesting that that, that, that you would hope that after this this great plea and this this sermon uh, that you wouldn't have to hear it again Um, But you find them in Luke chapter 22 actually arguing again about the very same thing the week of our Lord's passion. This is something that that the very death of Christ and the power of the Spirit would have to change in their lives. And that's a reality for us all, isn't it? You know? Like at the end of the day, we're going to find in this text that ultimately these are things that you can't conjure up in yourself. Um, that humility is not something naturally born. It's not something that I can teach you. It's not something academic. It's not something um, in the mind that, that you can just, just work out in your own heart. Um, it's not something that you can get better at um, by, by practicing um, with your natural skill or talents or somebody can sit down you know, and connect the dots in, 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 a, in a very natural way. It's something that the Lord has to teach you um, with a cross. That's it. Not only yours. Um, but he is, and in the fellowship of his sufferings. So Jesus sits down with them and in a very intimate way teaches them the pathway to true greatness. And he does so with a contrast uh, between what we might refer to as the world's greatness and the kingdom's greatness, or worldly natural greatness and spiritual godly greatness. Verse 42, he says, Jesus calls them to himself and he says these words, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. What our Lord does is He takes what He often does, just like in parables, and He takes a, a, a natural reality and He relates it to spiritual truth. And that's what He does here. He says, man, I want you to you know something about the world. It's inherent. You know, it was, you were fishermen, you were tax collectors, you worked, your, you, know, you worked your way up in the world. There was a hierarchy. There was a power structure. You know? um, they operated in a particular way under authority of an ascending ladder of lordship. Um, it, it, it was an ethic of a survival of the fittest at best, though. Um, and you know that of the world as well. The world hasn't changed, Right? And there's always someone below you. There's always someone above you that you're, 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 you're nipping at their, their feet to take their position. There's always someone underneath you ready to eat your lunch and take your position and your salary. You know, the natural man desires to ascend to the next rung um, to eat the person in front of them so that they can have their cake and eat it too to get the salary. I mean, since Jesus is saying, man, you know it's a dog-eat-dog world. 
It's a system of a fallen world. Greatness in this world. Greatness in the, in the, in the area of fishing. Greatness in the area of um, Judaism or, or within the, the framework of, of Rome, within the framework of Greek culture, um, within the framework of, 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 of whatever position that you're in, you know um, that it's, it, it's a goal to climb the ladder. Um, and you should be ready at any time to push the person in front of you off. Now, greatness is measured by strength. Gridiron determination is evidenced by your willingness to fight for what you believe in and what makes you happy. It's epitomized in men and women with power, with prestige, with prominence, with wealth, with, with things that the rest of the world does not have in which jealousy will overtake them and cause them to do things unto their fellow brethren that they would not otherwise do. And to give prominence and, pre- and, and, and preeminence to, to objects and wealth and various other things like relationships. And they're willing to, to, mow over, to mow over their brother or sister to get it. It's those who came from nothing and fought to make to the top against all odds. And we even love it in our day, you know. We, we love an underdog story. Somebody who came from nothing and, and muscled their way through um, just by, by, by gritting their teeth and burying it and pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps and pushing over anybody and everybody that it takes to get to the top. Jesus says, men, you know what the world's like. And that's not going to characterize you. My kingdom is a different kingdom. I was reminded as I read that of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 17, where Paul writes these words, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding dark and being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. This is, the, this is the verse. But men, you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. This is what you do. You put off concerning the former conduct. And he goes on and he says, this is what the world's like. And listen, Ephesus. Listen, men. Listen, women. Listen, pastors. Listen, children. Listen, boys. Listen, girls. If that's how the world operates, that's not how we operate. That's, not how, that, that's how they build their kingdom. That's not how we build our kingdom or Christ's kingdom. I was also reminded of uh, Psalm chapter number 1 as it contrasts um, the blessed man from the cursed man, the godly man from the ungodly man. You read these words in the first Psalm. Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law, He meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever He does shall prosper. And then this is the, the phrase, the ungodly are not so. And this is what you're to be, not like them. They're like chaff which is carried away by the wind. It drives it away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And He gives these contrasts of the the, the godly and the ungodly, the the, the blessed and the cursed, the the kingdom and the world. That's exactly what He's doing here. He says, men, there's something you know about the world. There's something that you know about greatness. And listen, it's not going to characterize this kingdom. It's not going to do it. 
I know there's a lot of great business strategies of the world, and I know there's a, great, a lot of great marketing um, ingenuity. I know there's a lot of gridiron determination from the world. I know that there's a lot that you can glean, and sometimes even laws of wisdom. And there's some there's some uh, some, some some things that you can that, that are just natural laws, even taught in the proverbs, and that, that are utilized by the ungodly to get where they're going. But listen, and at the end of the day. You know, you're not a CEO of the church. At the end of the day, you're not running an organization. At the end of the day, um, Christ is the foundation of the church. He's the key, chief cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation. And upon that, we build. And that's what he's essentially telling them. That you have a worldly mindset that needs to be taken off and you need to put on Christ. You need to stop building and seeking to build the kingdom the way that you desire according to what you know about the world and what you've seen. Even though it looks like a great idea and it seems like it'll work and you can get people in the door and you can do this or that and it'll be, it'll be great for numbers and it'll put money in the bank account. Um, it'll give you power and prestige. It'll give you prominence over other churches, whatever. Um, and Jesus essentially looks at them and says, men, everything that you know, just throw it away. That's not how we operate here. Whoever wishes to become great, He says, shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first shall be slave of all. The kingdom greatness is radically different than what it looks like in the world. That leadership strategy in the kingdom looks 100%, 200% different than what it generally looks like in the world. As Ephesians teaches us, as, as Psalms teaches us, as many other places teaches us, Jesus teaches us here, and that the way you lead and that true greatness doesn't come from um, those things. It comes from being a servant. It comes from being a table waiter. It comes from being last. It comes from not being known at all. You know? We look at leadership and we think about those men that are out at the front and we need leadership. And there's a sense in which we need that here, you know? And we need men that will go out and be at the front and be the example and be this and be that and be all that God requires. But at the same time, those men should soon be forgotten because those men are merely an example of the glories and the majesty of Christ such um, that they exemplify and display such a character that all, when you look at that man, you don't see that man, you see Christ. You see all that Christ has accomplished in that man or in that woman um, such that... Um, he, he or she is quickly forgotten. And Christ has given all the honor and all the glory as a result of their life because of what He's done in it. And that's what we are to lead in. You say, what does that look like? That looks like a, a, a servant. Turn there's doulos. Looks like a slave. Talk about a vicious attack upon the assault against our selfishness. And against James and John there and all the other ten. You know? That he just put a nail into the coffin, I hope, of most of those men's, at least for a short period of time, desire to be great according to, to worldly standards. And then he tells them why they should. I love it. Our Lord never just tells them to do it for doing its sake. He always gives them a motivation as to why to strive after that. And our Lord is not like many tyrants today who say, do as I do and not or do as I say and not as I do, who are unwilling to do the great labor and work that is before them, and they ask others to do it as a result, out of whatever reason, because they think they're too great or 
or they think are, are because they're too lazy. Um, our Lord tells us why we should be a servant of all in verse 45. And He tells us His reason is because He is. That it's a characteristic of God to serve. That it is that thing which makes Him God. That, 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 that in the holiness, within the, the, the composite nature of our Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in His holiness, in His uh, love, in His grace, in His righteousness, in His justice, in His compassion, in His patience, in His long-suffering, um, all those characteristics are characteristic of Him as a servant. Contained within that is a holy servitude. Contained within that is a compassionate servitude. In that, contained within that is a righteous servitude. In that, um, he, he becomes even a slave to all and a servant to all. As he says in verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That Jesus, the Son of God, would be the clearest presentation of the servitude of God to mankind. That the Lord of glory, the incarnate Son, the Son of God transcendent prior to um, 2,000 years ago, would become incarnate and take upon himself uh, the form of a servant. That's exactly what Philippians teaches us in Philippians chapter number two. You read those words. Therefore, if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind, letting nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each look out not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Why, Paul? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, slave, becoming coming in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him given Him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every, of those in heaven and of those of earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Men, you want to be exalted. Follow in your Savior and His example, who humbled Himself and laid aside Himself even to the death of a cross, essentially being defined as a servant. That Christ is the servant in part because He, he shows us the glory of God and He shows us that, that it is God Himself who takes pleasure in working for those um, who wait upon Him. That, that God in His essence is not something that, that Christ just simply came to do. And He became a servant at that time. God in His very nature is a servant. Um, Isaiah 64, in verse number 4, you read this, For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who works for the one who waits for Him. The New King James says, Acts, which you may have a translation that could literally be rendered there, who works for the ones who waits on Him. You meet Him who rejoices and does righteousness who remembers you in your way. You are indeed angry and you've sinned. But he says that, the, that, that, that God is a, a worker. He's one who works for those um, who, who wait upon Him. 
Um, not only that, in Luke chapter number 12 and verse number 37, we read a great statement that our Lord will not only serve, has not only serve us now and for those who wait for Him, but for all those that are in Him, all the nations at the end of the age, He will sit down and He will serve them in the kingdom to come. That God has been a servant before the ages began. That God has served mankind all throughout the ages uh, preeminently and predominantly. The, the fullest revelation of that in the servant of Jesus Christ. And not only that, He continues to serve us this day as He's seated at the right hand of God the Father and as the Spirit of God is operating in us and He's left Him for us, that great Comforter. And not only that, when we get to heaven, we won't be sustained without Him there to serve us all throughout eternity. That God is preeminently a servant. That the Son of Man, He says, did not come to be served. Isn't that an amazing statement? When we think about religion and we think about Christianity and we think about spiritual nature, we come together this morning and we think about service to God. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. You know? And the Jews wondered why. He would enter into the world. And they continue to wonder this day. And maybe you've wondered the same thing, you know. Why didn't you just take your rightful throne? Why didn't you immediately put all authority under your feet? You know, and in some sense, they'd ask the question, why didn't you come to be served? You deserve it. You're there. Like, it's yours. You have every right for it. Why do you lay it aside? Because in some sense, it was first necessary to secure servants before they could ever even serve Him. Before they could ever even serve Him. While it is true that we're to be servants by virtue of creation, you understand that the fall destroyed that. Thus, He comes to serve. He serves by bearing our sins. He serves by giving us life. He serves by bearing us up. He serves by giving us strength that He supplies. He serves us not only in His death and resurrection, but also um, in the gift of the Spirit of God throughout all the ages. He comes to serve. You know? And thus you're to be a servant. And your ultimate call in the Christian life is to serve. It's to be a slave at all. It's to be willing to die without being known by men. It's willing to lay aside whatever God has given you your rights and your privileges and those things you deserve. You know? Sometimes like a rich young ruler, everything that grips your heart. You're, 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 just a, you're, you're to be ready to lay it aside. You know, essentially to, to run to the aid of others and in serving others, serving God. And that's what we see. But it's also interesting to, to, to ask the question, which ways are we not to be servants of Christ in this text? Right? You know, there's a lot of Pharisees out there today and throughout the ages being punished in eternal hell because they thought they were serving God. You know? And we're not just talking about temple sacrifice here. We're not just talking about coming on the Lord's Day. We're not talking about singing a few hymns. We're not talking about uh, listening to a sermon. We're not talking about taking good notes. We're not talking about um, all the religious guard that goes around and goes on um, with what we do. we do here. My greatest fear is that I would preach a less than gospel such that you would feel comfortable here um, doing that. My greatest fear is that for my children, that'll be true of them as well. You know? That they'll continue to serve God with some sense of 
um, worth and value, try to earn their way to heaven. Now, seeing the glorious nature of the gospel and get lost in service and not see the true beauty of Christ, the greatest servant of all, and be willing to give their lives, you know, throughout for something, for a religious establishment. It worries me more than atheism. It worries me more than them abandoning Christ altogether. Because at least I know what they need at that point. At least I know what atheists need. They need the gospel. But there are people nestled in churches all throughout the land. You know, they're nestled in service. Only to meet their Christ one day and stand before that great judge in all of his righteousness. And he tells them, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And maybe he'll say, you only, but, but I served. But you only ever served yourself. That we can get lost in a service that only serves self. And that's the truth. Or we can get lost in a service in which we think that we are serving God and in some sense of adding something to Him. You know, what does it mean to be a servant of Christ? Are you a servant of Christ? A servant of Christ recognizes humility. That God is their Creator and their Redeemer. That the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's what a servant is. And that means that I belong to God and you belong to God. Today, if you're an unbeliever, if you're a little boy or a little girl outside of Christ, um, this morning, you're God's. And you owe Him your service. He owe, you owe Him. He has ultimate authority over you and your life and to do what He pleases. Now, Revelation 4.11 is one of my favorite verses. For you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by Your will they exist and are created. Reminded in this point of Romans 9 that says, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to Him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make of one vessel for honor and another of dishonor? And the answer is yes. Yes. He does. He has the right. He has the right to do as He pleases. He has the right to make a lump. He has the right to demand of that lump. He has the right to receive honor and glory from that lump simply because He made that lump. He has total rights over everything and all that He's created. And that's what the Scripture testifies of. And that we are totally indebted to Him. That by virtue of creation, we owe Him complete allegiance and He owes us nothing. Did you know that? Luke chapter 17, verse 7, speaks of a man who goes out to serve and tend the sheep. And he says when he comes in, will he say to him, did he come into the field a slave? Will he say to him, come at once and sit down and eat? But he'll not rather, will he not say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk. And afterwards you will eat and drink. Does, he says, this is what the master, he says of this master, does he thank? Does the master thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? This is Jesus' words. He says, I think not. So likewise, when you've done all those things that you're commanded, say, say this, when you've done everything you've commanded, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. The idea is, is that we're all God's servants by virtue of creation, simply creation, even the unbeliever, even Satan in a sense, owes allegiance to God simply because He created him that we're bound to Him like we are by creation to give Him honor. It's a moral obligation. That we're bound even regardless of reward. 
That had God not covenanted with us and give us promises outside the covenant, that, that had He simply made us and, and placed demands upon us, at the end of the day, if we would have completed it 100% accurately, and the text Jesus Himself says they would have earned no reward. They would have simply done what God required. And that's why we can say that we are unprofitable servants. Unprofitable in the sense that we add nothing to God. Unprofitable servants in the sense is that we, we, we give Him essentially nothing. Um, that's the argument of, of Scripture. That the best servant of Christ, even when he finishes the job, acknowledges that he adds that there is no profit to the Father in, in some sense. And that's a hard concept for me to grasp. But the truth is, is that God is not better nor worse because you did or did not obey Him. He's not, more, he's not, he's not changed in any sense because of your faithfulness or your unfaithfulness. Um, our goodness extendeth not unto God, the Scripture says, nor if we are righteous... Is he the better? Psalm 162 and Job 22, 2. That he has no essential need of us, nor does, he, no, nor does he need our services, nor does it make any addition to his perfections. You won't change his essence, this world, and all of its rebellion won't make him any worse for the, for the wear as a result of all their ungodliness. We don't run the show, God does. Acts chapter 17. Teaches us that. Acts chapter number 17 and verse number 24, you read these words. Paul is preaching to um, a, a pagan people. He says, Therefore, the one who, whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their, their appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord. That's what he, the, 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 the verse there is that He's not worshipped with men's hands as if He needed anything. That the purpose of worship um, is not because there's something lacking in God that He essentially needs. That God is self-sufficient. Therefore, if you try to serve Christ by somehow supplying His needs, that you're guilty of the most impiety that you could probably do under the sun. To say that God is absent of something, therefore He needs me. If there is nothing that you can do where at the end of the age you'll be able to stand before God and say, Lord, here's my ticket. Pay it up. You're not like a person on a plantation or, or going into a factory or working in a hospital to where you've worked throughout the day and at the end of it you can say uh, you know, to, to, to that Lord or your boss or this or that, um, you know, give it up. You earn something with them. You don't earn anything with Him. Um, there's, there, there's nothing. He, why? Because He is in all things. He, he is, he's, in Him, all things move and live and have their being. That every single thing that you have um, is nothing that He did not have previous. That that's what we read in First Chronicles chapter number 29. That everything that you have to give is His already. That there is nothing that was created that He did not have, nor does He not own to this day. So to give Him what is already His is not to add anything to Him. That it is not necessary in that sense. That, it is, that, 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 that there is not one person in the kingdom of God that is... Um, in, in any sense, not indispensable in that way. Right? 
And you know that. You know that probably most profoundly about yourself if you're humble at all. Um, you know that God doesn't need us. But sometimes we look at the kingdom of God in other ways and we think, man, what would God do without that person? Right? And what would the kingdom look like without Peter or Paul? What would the kingdom look like without Athanasius or Polycarp? What would the kingdom look like without Luther or Calvin? What would the kingdom look like without Sproul or MacArthur? Listen, many of us would be lost without men like that. But God would not be lost. God doesn't need either any of them. And you know I and you know how I know it? Because because all men die and the kingdom goes on. Their life and ministry ceases, but God goes forth. Why? Because He has an unchanging factor. Not them. Not us. That one of the steps of becoming an effective servant in the kingdom of Christ is to understand that the Gospel is not a, a help-wanted service or sign. You know, and people, we preach that like that all the time. You know, it's like, man, if that person would just get saved, you know, come on in, there's plenty to do. If that person would just get saved, the ministry would just flourish here, you know. But it's not a help-wanted sign. The Gospel is a help-offered sign. It's a pardon-offered sign. We're the ones with the needs, not Him. He doesn't need us. We need Him. That's why He didn't come to be served. That's why He came to serve. Because there was a world that needed Him. That's why He entered in and He laid aside certain prerogatives and rights and even authorities to become the Son of Man. Not because He needed anything, but because the world needed everything. That we are the ones without. That we are the ones that lack. That we are the ones that are deficient. That we are the ones that are sinful. That we are the ones that are plagued by, 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 by the sin of ourself and our self-gratification and our pursuit of pride and our pursuit of, of selves. And that, that at the end of the day, the greatest servant of Christ um, is a servant who comes and recognizes His great need of Christ. That we are to come to Him as that, as, as we read at the beginning, Psalm 123, verses 1 and 2. As a beggar, as a maid comes to her mistress, or as a slave comes to her master, and with our eyes we look to our Lord until He has mercy upon us. That we look to Him as the one who can supply all of our needs because He is the one without any needs. And He is the one that is sufficient within and of Himself. That we look up to Him as our benefactor. The one who gives us everything that we need for life and for godliness. That just like a little maid who would look up to the hand of her mistress or a slave his master as the only source of sustenance, so we ourselves look up to the very hand of God because we recognize that, that our greatest need is our need of Him. And not only for salvation, but for service. That the power to serve others comes only by realizing how Christ has came and served us. And not only that, but continues to serve us even to this day. It's not only in salvation and eternal life since, but we have to realize today that the only reason that we are sustained is because Christ continues to serve us even now at the right hand of God the Father. And that the Son, that the Spirit of God is serving in us. And that the greatest joy in life and service, note this, that the greatest joy in life and service is found not in satisfying the desires of the flesh, but in recognizing um, true service to others by losing ourselves in it. That it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's where to serve. We're to serve in Christ's example once we're saved by the grace of God. 
To serve simply means to wait upon. It means to like a table waiter, right? Um, to serve in a sense of waiting tables, not waiting in the sense of going nowhere, but, but in the sense of serving tables. It means to literally, to, it can mean to, to relieve one's necessities, to provide, to attend to anything to serve another's interests. And when we say those things, we define Christ, right? Like, what did he come? He came to relieve our necessities. He came to provide us where, where we lacked. He came to attend to us in serving our interests. And thus, we are to serve others with that. We are to look at others and seek out a necessity in them. We are to look to see if a need is not being met. We are to look for the interests of others that need to be met. And, we are to, and, the, and the most Christ-like thing to do is to meet those needs. I love 1 Corinthians 16-15 in the um, King James translation. You read these words, I beseech you, brethren, or I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it's the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. You love that. They have, if you want a good addiction, something to lose yourself in and to be hooked to, this is what Paul says. He says that, 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 that you also must submit in the next verse to such. Um, you, should, you should submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. He, said, he writes to Corinth and he says that these men, this household, um, these brethren are addicted to the service of the saints. And I would, I would beg you to submit, urge you to submit to the same thing. Fall in love or, 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 or commit to love. Don't fall in love, but commit to love the service of others. Losing, losing yourself as Christ lost himself, laying aside certain things for the influence and the benefit of others. That's it. You want a good addiction, a good enslavement? Christ says be a slave to all in Mark 10. But not, again, to, to guard against just service altogether, don't be like Martha who gets upset when others aren't serving. That's not a genuine attitude at all. That's trying to earn something. But simply serve without being seen. Serve not to be seen, but serve simply because Christ was a servant to all. And you see a need and you do it. Not knowing The left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. But this is the essence of Christianity in some sense. 1 John 3.17 says, But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? This is what he argues. He argues that a person that has goods and he has the ability to aid and he sees his brother in need... Not just wants and not just desires, but in need. Something that is lacking in him. Something that, that, that he's deficient in. Something that would prosper him. Something that would aid him in the battle of the Christian life. If he sees something and he shuts him out, then how in the world, John says, the same guy that, that, that sat under this teaching in Mark, the same guy that we're giving a hard time to now, has learned the lesson. And he says when a person sees something like that and he doesn't, how in the world does the love of God abide in them? Why? Because this is the essence of Christ. He is the suffering servant. He is the servant who come to suffer and to, to, to be deficient in, 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 in His humanity. Not in His deity, but in His humanity for the purpose of, of, of meeting the needs of all of humanity. Like this is the Christ-like nature. Like he, he willingly, committedly, intendedly, with promises and covenants to man, enters into the world out of compassion and love for the sole purpose of dying. Like who lives life like that? Like who wakes up in the morning and says, like, how can I die today, Lord? Like how can Lord, how can I be forgotten so that that brother, so that how can I prefer that person? Father, give me someone today to prefer more than myself. God, let me pray like that. Father, help me to get lost in my wife today. 
such that she's exalted and I'm not. Father, help me to, to, to pursue my children in such a way just to get lost in them. Father, that they may see Christ in all of His glory and majesty as a result of my service. But Father, help them. Help them. Father, help me to prefer someone else today than more than preferring myself. That's what love is. That's the essence of Christ in His, in His incarnation. Romans 15, 25 says that um, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. That's what he did. That's what Paul did. Paul says, I'm going why? To, to give them something that they don't have. I'm not going for myself. I didn't show up to church this morning. He says, I'm not going to the congregation um, so that they can impart some gift to me. Uh, Romans chapter 1 says, I'm going to impart something to them that'll be for their benefit. That'll help them spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. Something in that congregation. I'm here. I'm there that morning. I'm making the travel. I'm trekking the seas. I'm going across the world to reach people to give them something that they don't have. You know what Paul walks away with? He walks away oftentimes with an empty bag and bumps and bruises because of the persecutions. He doesn't have a great bank account. He doesn't have a wonderful ministry. Or he's not going to receive accolades in this life. He's going to be a man by by, by which, to all of his estimation, I guarantee he would have been forgotten. But the reason reason we remember him today is because Christ has exalted him as a preeminent uh, human um, uh, emblem of service to the church. And like that's how we're to go, right? That's how we're to operate. That's how we're to show up this morning. You know, so many people come and so many people go. You know why? Because I didn't, I didn't meet their needs. You know, um, or they came morning needs met. Not coming to serve. You know, many people abandon marriages today. I'll tell you one of the number one reasons because they had, they had uh, wrong expectations in the beginning. And when they got there, they found out that person didn't quite love them as much as they thought they did. And they didn't dote upon them quite as much as they thought that they did. And they came into marriage to be served, not to serve. You want a good marriage? Men, you want a good marriage? Women, children, when you enter into marriage, you enter into marriage that great emblem of, very, of, the, of the nature of Christ and the ministry of the church himself. Men, Christ, I've probably quoted this a thousand times, probably more than any other verse in this pulpit. You know, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. How to do that? Like he entered in as a servant. That's it. You know? You enter into marriage, you enter into church and a covenant with God's people as a servant. You know? Like if your ultimate goal here this morning was to come just to be served. I'm afraid you're going to be let down. But if you came this morning to serve, like look at all these people. Look at that. You say it doesn't look like much. All of this, you know, 70, 80 souls here that are lacking in so many areas. They're so far from Christ. So many marriages. So many children that need Christ. So many immature believers. So many mature believers that could come alongside. Like that's what church is about. Service to one another and service to Christ. And in essence, that's what you see in Matthew 25 and 41. Right? You remember that great passage where Jesus says, you know, at that, at that last day, um, you're going to receive accolades. Why? Because you, you visited me in prison and you brought me water and you did all these things. And they're going to look and say, Lord, I didn't do any of that for you. And they're going to say, oh, you did when you did it uh, to one of the, the least of these in my name. Like the service of Christ this morning and the worship of Him often takes place in the service of one another. That as I serve you this morning, I pray that I do it uh, with, with a humble heart ready to be forgotten. But most days I don't. I'm just going to be honest with you. Like it's a struggle. 
It's a struggle to have a pure thought. Like just totally unbridled for Christ. Like, like you pray for that and you long for that, but the world is just, it's just, it just weighs upon you. So, so you, you, you see that deficiency in you and you just go back to Christ. Like and you run to the gospel every single time that one who came as a ransom for many. That son of man who gave his life on Calvary, the, the, the preeminent servant of all, and you look to him and you get some more strength for the fight um, to, to, to die to yourself as you get lost in him and lost in one another. That's a servant, right? It's, 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 it's born out of a genuine heart that's been changed by the grace of God in such a way that it humbles you to even be known as a child of God. Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called the children of God. That we, and, then, and, and it provokes a love for one another such that day in and day out, um, we should wake up with this idea of today, um, who am I going to serve? How can I serve my wife today? I mean, it's a great prayer to begin with. God, help me to find someone to prefer over one another. That, 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 that James and John, that listen, us, the ten, but us. We're just so lost in being served, right? Jesus got one thing I want to ask you. <laughs> How will you serve me? And Jesus flips it on its head and says, the greatest in the kingdom are not those who have been served and have great things because they've been served. And they have accolades and rewards and houses and things and like that and because they've been served. They have power and prestige and prominent places because they've been served. The greatest in the kingdom of God are those that serve. Those that are a slave of all. Those who feel bound to humanity. Those who feel bound to their brothers. Those who are enslaved to their brothers. Addicted to the service of the saints but at the same time not ready to be forgotten at any moment that Christ may be exalted and remembered for all ages. God may codify this church in that service. Ready when you come into the congregation, just ready to serve one another. Look and engage in conversations and gather outside the house of God for such an occasion to see not how can I serve in, in ministry, right? We don't want to get lost in Martha and sweeping and things like that and think uh, it is a form of service. There's no doubt and praise God for those who serve in that capacity but I pray that at the end of the day that the focus is not upon the broom, but it is upon those to whom you are sweeping it for. That our service should not be so program-oriented and structured in such a sense that we think about how can we get lost in, in the service and forget Christ, but, 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 but more of a, a this, this morning, not how can I serve, but who can I serve? Right? Because it is love for others that should provoke the service. It is love for humanity that provokes God the Father, Son, and Spirit to enter in and serve and meet the needs of those who were deficient. And you too should not get lost in the trappings of superficial ministry, um, in the how-tos thinking that you're accruing any accolades with God. But you should get lost in the people that are here thinking, man, what I'm doing today may benefit them. It may exalt the worship. It may, it may do this or it may do that. And that we are to be lost, not in service, but we are to be lost in, in one another, committed intentionally, um, seeking to prefer one another over all of that. Um, and that's the text. I've got some application, but I've already given a lot of the application. But let me just say one or two things. It may alarm you to say the, to the idea. I think even our brother, he did, he prayed it. You know, God, you don't need anything we have. It may alarm you today to think, man, God doesn't need us. And that's a, that's a bold thing to say, maybe you're thinking. I don't know if I would say it that way. God didn't need us. 
That's because we're caught up in a self-esteem culture in which you're just the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know? Um, but it shouldn't discourage us that God doesn't need us. Because at the end of the day, He didn't need us. And He still came for us. You know? That what you begin to realize in the fact that God didn't need us, there was no necessity in Him to shore Him up. Just out of the pure love, He came for us in His Son by the power of the Spirit. Like everything that we have is just the love gifts and the grace gifts of an almighty God to a people who didn't deserve it. You know? He wasn't urged by need. And there was nothing in him that he needed to shore up, but there was everything in him that provoked him to come. And that's everything that we have is just the love of God upon us. You know, we uh, uh, wrestled with that with uh, you know this week with with other people, you know, that, that that great that great privilege of being in Christ and just thinking about some of the things you know that that, that we do in service to God. And we think, man, he doesn't need that at all. You know, Matthew even argues that as Jesus argues that Matthew, like you know, he knows what we pray beforehand. Like, why even pray? Like that's the struggle that I have. You know, coming to a conclusion of a sovereign God and a, and a high theological position and all that God is and all that God controls and reading the Scriptures and listening to Jesus, I'm like, well, I pray at all. You know, he doesn't even know what we need. You come to the conclusion that prayer is not so much for Him, it's for us. That it's a gift to us. To commune with us. That Christ died for us. That persevering in prayer does something for us. It's love for us. Like He doesn't need prayer. We need prayer. We need communion with God. He doesn't need evangelism. Like he could come down with the angels, the 10,000 angels today, and proclaim the gospel, you know, and bring this whole world tonight. He doesn't need that. We do. They do. You know, we need to grow in faith and grace and love and compassion. So God gives us these things to work through and trials to cultivate patience in us. They're gifts to us. Like he doesn't need us, but, but, but in some sense, he, we're His. And He's covenanted with us. By creation, He didn't owe us anything. So He enters into covenant with us and promises things that, that, that the rest of creation doesn't have. The angels don't get. That, that they wonder in glory when we get there, how did this guy get here? You know? <laughs> I mean, after all that he did and after all that she did and the way they led their family and the way they are, you know, argued in, in church, various other things. Like, and we're just going to look and say, it's not because of us. We didn't need Him. He didn't need us. Like, but we needed Him. Like, and He came for me. He came for me when I wasn't looking for Him. I love Him simply because He first loved me. Like everything that we have here today is not because like, He needs anything this morning. Like, a lot of it's for us. And that when we cling to one another and we lose ourselves in Him, it ultimately circles back to Him and He receives the glory and honor that is due His name. That worship is a factor in it. But the worship comes from Him. I could, there, there's not one thing here this morning that we didn't get from Him. And we're just giving it back to Him. We're not creative. We're not inventive. We're not, we're not this. We're not that. There's no smoke. There's no mirrors. There's nothing here this morning. You know, and you may look around and say, this is just ordinary. Praise God for that. That He uses ordinary means and things that aren't great and just common men, blue-collar boys, um, in which He'll just, 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 just enamor with His love and change their hearts for them to, 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 to finally see the reason for which they were created. And that's what I wish that we would see this morning. That's my great prayer. That, that, that we shouldn't get um, caught up in this idea and discouraged that He doesn't need us. Um, but that should encourage us and provoke us to worship and to honor and to delight in Him and to fear His, His name. And not only that, but there's no nominal job, number two, in the kingdom. Do you recognize that? 1 Corinthians 12 says that we're all made to serve. 
And you may be looking around thinking, man, I don't have an important job to do. Um, you know what? People that stock the water. I mean, people who come together to clean the church, people who just invest in one another just day in and day out, week in and week out. There is no nominal job in Christianity. You know, Christ redeems it all if it's done out of love for Him and out of love for one another. And it will come with an eternal reward. You know, I've heard men say that I'm overqualified for this or that. Really? I have too many qualifications. (laughs) You know who's the most overqualified person in all the world? Jesus Himself. Like who came and gave it all up? Like who was overqualified? Christ laid aside everything. You know what? To do that which we should have done. And that as a servant, your life displays the Gospel to the world and it shows them a love um, that the world cannot and will not know without Christ. Not only that, focus on the how. Not on the how, but on the who. And we talked about that. That This church is going to operate on leadership. The leadership has to be leadership by service. Families should operate on leadership, but servant leadership, man. You know? And when we think about a church, I'm not a CEO. This is not a business I'm running. I have a family here. I have sons and daughters in the faith. I have brothers and sisters in Christ. And you better believe that, you know, um, the way that I'm going to operate this church and do that is, is um, to love one another and to give myself and to give my all by the grace of God, if you'll help me. I'm to lose myself in it for the rest of my life, you know, for you. Without marketing strategies, without any show, um, I'll be there. 10.30 at night, call me. It happened last night. I'll be there. And that's not anything, again, that's not to say, receive any amen. That's just to tell you, as a father, a spiritual leader of this church, I love you. I love you. Because Christ loved me. Don't hesitate to call. Um, we live in the shadow of the cross. Never let us forget that the ransom paid was for the freedom of servanthood or for servitude. Never think that you're a little man in a big pot or a big man in a little pot. You're just one of many who didn't deserve to be in the pot. And God has placed you there for a particular reason. Therefore, you are of great worth and dignity and value. And we need you in this congregation because simply because Christ saved you. And you are a way that God meets our needs in this congregation because we are deficient. And you are a way in which He serves us all. And He continues to serve Isn't it amazing that this morning Christ is serving you continually? When you think, man, he should have done—he's he's done more than he should have ever done. He continues to lavish love upon us day after day and night after night as he bends his knee and picks up the towel and the soap and washes our feet, even now. And you can take it to the bank and have great hope and joy that tomorrow He will stay the same. Because we have a great and a mighty Savior who never changes, who doesn't need us, but we need Him. And if you're without Him this morning, 
I beg you to see the beauty of Christ and all of His glory and majesty. And put your faith and trust in that servant, suffering Savior, Jesus Christ, who will change your life and give you finally a reason to live. Um, and if that's you today, I beg you to cry out to God and ask Him to save your soul. And I trust, as with me and every other believer all throughout the ages, there has never been one to whom has come to Him that He has not been willing to receive. If you'll come with a humble heart and beg Him. So do that this morning. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for the opportunity, the precious opportunity to sit under Your Word, even in my own heart, Lord. I could read the text. And I've read it, I don't know how many times. But You just continue to serve. Father, You continue to convict me of the husband I am, even in preaching, the father that I am, father, the pastor that I am, the brother that I am, the son that I am. Father, I fall so short. And I wonder why some days. Why you would love any of us at all. You don't need us. I don't even know if I profit you some days. But I glory the fact that you love me. Anyhow, I rejoice in the fact, Father, that you send your Son into the world. Not just for a one-time wham-bam moment to save us from hell and eternity. Father, your Son just continues to love me even this day. This bride that's before me, Father, is just an expression of that. God, would you show them your love? Would you just teach them this morning, Father, over and over again? As we, like James and John, just keep coming back in our pride thinking we're something great and showy, Father, we have something to offer. We're just, we're just trophies of grace. Father, we struggle so hard with pride. God, I struggle so hard with preaching some days. Not with the content, but with my own heart. so gracious would you just continue to lay Christ before me would you help me to wake up with a gospel in my mind father would you help me to be a servant would you help me to get lost in the all encompassing love of God such that father he's preeminent and I could care less father what the world thinks I have such a fear of men I have such a desire to please them Help me to please you. Help me to be that blessed man of Psalm 1. Father, help me to put on Christ like Paul in Ephesians 4. Help me not to operate on ungodly principles, Father. God, just help me to delight in you. To fear your name. Father, that's what we need in this church. Now, we don't need great men. 
We need a great God who saves and keeps undeserving wicked men and makes them something of eternal value. Father, I pray that for our children. I pray, Lord, that they wouldn't walk in a, a world of, and a home, Father, full of um, service-oriented attitudes such that they forget to do that one thing that's needful, and that's worship Christ. That through our service, Lord, we worship Christ. May the gospel not fall short, Father, in our practice such that they think that they can carry on and earn anything with God. But humble their hearts, Father, at that whatever age necessary, show them their lack and need of you as you've done with us. God, that's what we desire. Would you save our children? Father, would you save our loved ones? God, it seems like a good thing. It seems like it would glorify your name. I trust you with it. Well, give us a boldness and evangelism, Father, just to boast in the glories of Christ. And when you come through, Father, there's no denying that there's a God in heaven. And they fall on their knees and glorify our Father, which is in heaven, as they see our good works. Father, thank you for loving us today. And thank you for loving us tomorrow. And all the days to come. Make us more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen.